Hi, this is Angel, and welcome to Spark Up. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Spark Up in my little corner of the podcast world. Again, my name is Angel, and I welcome you back into season two. So this is going to be a mini spark episode. And for those of you who don't know, mini sparks are kind of shorter, kind of bite-sized episodes where I usually go over current events, autism if it pops up in the news, or maybe just little things that have happened that don't quite flesh out long enough, at least not yet, to be a full episode, but I think warrant some kind of attention. So I like to call this mini spark episode lack of empathy. So one of the incorrect myths about autism is that autistic people lack empathy or have little empathy for others. And this is really based on neurotypical signs of empathy, like eye contact, you know, straightforward reaction to others when they're in pain or excited. Um, A lot of times you kind of look at, you know, if you're looking at younger kids, the ones that, you know, one kid falls down, starts crying, and this kid seems to not you know, just ignore it, Where, when in actuality, they may be very much aware that the child is in pain, but may not show it in the same way that we expect them to show it. So the truth is, a lot of autistic people actually have said that they have an overabundance of empathy, and it's simply just expressed differently. They feel too much, and that's one reason why they tend to go into themselves, uh, move away from people, have more of their stems kind of come up because they're actually emotionally overwhelmed. I'm bringing this up because of two situations that were brought to my attention within the last week, week and a half. And they both kind of reveal a truth that I don't think a lot of people in the autism community, meaning those who support autistic people, I don't think a lot of people in the autism community realize this, that overwhelmingly, It's a lot of times the neurotypical people who are not consistently showing empathy toward autistic people. The first example I want to bring up comes from Fort Worth, Texas. And this was uh, the the main article I got this from was from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram newspaper. And so there is a organization, a company called Fort Behavioral Health, and they have two adolescent residential programs. One if memory serves me correctly, is focused more on kind of substance abuse and the other is focused more on autistic teenagers. Both of these were shut down last week by the state's Health and Human Services Commission. One of them, of course, like I said, being Camp Worth, which focuses on autistic teens. The commission did an emergency shutdown of the programs stating, quote, an immediate threat to the health and safety of children in care according to the suspension order. That, of course, brings up a lot of ideas on what that could mean. There were no further details given on it. So, of course, imagination could run rampant on what that means. According to the article, the closure came as a shock to the parents, who were told by the center 24 hours earlier that everything was fine. The parents had started kind of wondering because a few days before they started getting calls from the state asking about this center and whether or not they'd seen anything suspicious or had heard anything suspicious and particularly about uh, restraints being used on the teens or about, you know, it being well, well understaffed. And the parents had no idea about any of this. And when the parents went to 
you know, the, the, the camp and the organization and asked, they were told that everything was fine, even up to 24 hours before the suspension was put down. They were being told, nope, everything's fine. It's fine. Go ahead and drop your kids off. That same day that it was dropped, they had to scramble to get back over and, and get their kids. And mind you, some of these families were from out of state. They were from neighboring states and had dropped their kids off at the residential program. Now they had to scramble within that day and get their kids out or their kids could possibly be, you know, taken under the jurisdiction of the state. Which is, if you're a parent, you know, having to kind of drop everything and even even dropping everything to drive over and pick up your child from daycare when they're just like, you know, two miles away can be a hassle if you're working. Imagine having to drive a few hours because, oh, I thought I was going to be placing my child in a residential program for some months or weeks. And I find out now I have, you know, eight to 12 hours to get back over to this other state and pick them up. So needless to say, a lot of the parents were not happy about that turn of events. The shutdown is for about 30 days. Um, and according to Fort Behavior themselves, they said that during the shutdown, they're going to, quote, work to restructure our curriculum and update our policies, unquote, which tells you again, clearly everything was not all fine if they have to restructure their curriculum and update the policies. That means there was stuff written that was in place that was not good. And the state found out about it. Clearly, like I said, something was amiss. Ideally, in centers like that, the understaffing can be an issue because there should be a certain ratio of staff to clients. A lot of times that's not the case. I worked in uh, substance abuse for a little while, very short while. And I was in a residential program and I've seen the things that can go wrong if the center or the place is understaffed or not properly, you know, or doesn't have skilled folks in place that are, you know, on staff. When it's like really, really, really understaffed and has high turnover, the remaining staff can get overworked. And this can lead to short tempers and, of course, a higher risk for inappropriate behavior. Anyone who has worked in any industry where, you know, one or two people being out could mess up the entire flow of things, you probably know how this can affect everyone. This also holds true in the second example that I'm about to give. This is a little this one's a little different. So this came from a phone call that I had with a parent of an autistic adult out of state, up in, in Delaware. Um, the parent feels that the system in place in the state is failing her son because he is black and therefore treated differently. So um, he has a diagnosis of pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. So PDD-NOS. Let me stop for a second, explain that because some of you probably just looked at the, <laughs> like, what is that? So this was a diagnosis. It's no longer it's no longer in the DSM, aka the the book of all diagnoses for mental health. It's no longer in the DSM because it's been roped under autism spectrum disorder. Same way Asperger's is no longer in the DSM. So as of a couple of years ago, you can't get diagnosed with Asperger's or PDD NOS. PDD NOS was usually used when someone suspected autism, but wasn't a hundred either wasn't a hundred percent sure 
or felt that they maybe hit some of the criteria, but you know, I've noticed a lot of times it got diagnosed when the uh, physician or the clinician that was diagnosing wasn't quite sure. It was kind of like a, an all catch kind of diagnosis. Well, I don't want to diagnose autism, so I'll just diagnose this. From what she has told me about uh, the, her son's behaviors, and again, I'm not someone who can diagnose, but it does sound very much like autism amongst other things. I think there's a couple of other things that might be going on there, and I'll explain why in a second. Um, she's very frustrated at the fact that she's been told by social workers and therapists that he doesn't act like he has autism because he has had children and can do things on his own and that he just needs to quote unquote grow up. This is a extremely limiting view of autism to assume that because someone's autistic, they can't have children. They can't uh, be parents. I'm like, how you do realize that autism is genetic, right? So a lot of the kids and teens who have autism there are probably adults, there may even be a parent who probably would be considered autistic and just never got diagnosed. So right there, the fact, oh, well, he has kids, so he can't possibly be autistic, that throws that out the window immediately. The other part, well, he can do a lot of things on his own. A lot of autistic people can do a lot of things on their own. Many of them actually do not need as many supports as we kind of assume. This comes back to the idea of, you know, how autism is perceived to the general public. It's assumed that it's like, you know, rain man. It's either like rain man where they are completely dependent on others and cannot do anything on their own. Or it's like the good doctor where they're a savant genius and, you know, just has like quirks, so to speak. And that's it. There's no in between whatsoever. Her son is the example, is kind of a good example of an autistic person who has gotten extremely good at masking. And I've talked about masking a couple of times before, but masking is basically when, and to be honest, uh, let's be honest, people of color, especially black people, we do some variation of this quite a bit too. We kind of tend to call it code switching, but um, masking is kind of taking that to another, to another level. Masking is basically covering your entire essence of who you are to try and fit in. So adults in particular who are on the spectrum because of perhaps bullying that happened when they were younger or because they were told that you know growing up that oh you shouldn't do that or oh that's not normal everyone wants to be accepted and loved at the end of the day and so we're going to as kids as teens as adults we're going to do what we have to do or what we feel we have to do in order to receive that so masking happens when Autistic individuals do not feel that they would be accepted in that environment as they truly are. And so they hold back the stems, they hold back um, kind of any kind of behaviors or thoughts that they think may not be seen as appropriate. They may, if they have a, if they have difficulty with eye contact, they may try to do more eye contact to appear more normal. Anyone, and uh, Speaking also to like, I guess, I guess the minority communities who've also had to quote unquote code switch, anyone can tell you that if you spend a whole day doing that, by the time you get home, you're exhausted because you've had to put up a facade basically for the entire day. Um, having to, you know, walk around all day. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great. Da, 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 for like several hours at a, at a time. That'll wear out anyone. For someone on the spectrum, it's even worse. So what would happen with this particular adult is that he would go to 
therapy sessions. He'd go to, you know, these different social workers who are supposed to help him. And they would, um, you know, he would present perfectly normal in front of them. He'd be able to have conversations with them. He would make decent eye contact with them, everything. And so they would say, well, he seems perfectly normal to us. So they would put all of these um, expectations on him. Well, this is what you need to do. You need to go do this and get a job. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do that and have this whole list. He would get home and that's when the mask would come off and he would literally explode. So the family are the ones who see all of the maladaptive behaviors. They're the ones that see him punching holes in the wall and then immediately apologizing. They're the ones that hear him saying all these, you know, horrible things. And usually autism-related meltdowns do not involve violence. It can be kind of tricky if the person's having a meltdown and it's just anything in their path they're just kind of lashing out at. I don't consider that to be necessarily violence because it's not directed it's just they they've just been completely overwhelmed i will say though that sometimes if an autistic person has not been taught how to regulate their emotions or taught how to ask for help in regulating their emotions they can have violent actions that happen during a meltdown but this could be because of a combination of things it could be there could be also low impulse control there could be anger management issues uh, a lot of things compounding with the autism it's really rare during meltdowns that the autistic person will turn on other people. To be perfectly honest, a lot of times they actually do the opposite. They turn on themselves more, far more often and they end up self-injuring. I've heard of this far more than I have them turning it outwardly. So a lot of times you'll get self-injurious behavior. That's when you get like head banging. Sometimes that's because of sensory related things and other times it's because of the meltdown just going into a really bad place. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of make a note and say that, that just because, you know, the per violence and autism do not automatically go together, vast majority of the time, it doesn't. You sometimes have the rare occasion, though, again, when someone has not been taught how to regulate their emotions. And that's with anyone. That's even with a typical developing person. A neurotypical person, if they haven't been taught how to you know, manage their anger, they'll get mad during a football game and punch a hole in the TV. Same issue. Autistic people are subject to the same type of issues as neurotypical people when it comes to stuff like that. If they're not taught how to regulate their emotions or how to express their emotions in a way that doesn't involve, you know, damaging property or themselves or other people, guess what? They're going to grow up thinking that, that that's okay or that there won't be any consequences for it. So, um, yeah, this is something that neurotypical and neurodiverse people go through. So it is not exclusive to autistic adults by any means. So I wanted to make sure that was, you know, well, you know, well established. So because of the fact that no one in the system believes that he has autism because they feel, oh, well, he was, they've even told her that, well, he was diagnosed back when he's a kid, he's grown out of it. Uh, side note, you don't grow out of autism. You may learn how to manage it better. A lot of people learn how to mask it better, for sure. But you don't outgrow autism. That, that's not how it works. <laughs> it's a genetic disorder. It's not how it works. Um, but because no one believes that he has autism because he doesn't present as aut their definition of autistic, the systematic approach has been to treat him as if he has a mental health condition. Now, that might be true. There may be a mental health condition running alongside autism. 
but completely ignoring the autism or PDD diagnosis means that only part of the issue is being treated. Furthermore, he's still not being taught how to regulate himself to prevent meltdowns. That's the big one. Like he, in all of this, he's just being, he's put into a mental health facility and drugged to, you know, sedate him. And that's it. He's not being taught how to actually regulate his emotions. Meltdowns at nearly 30 years old are real different than meltdowns at three years old. And unfortunately, his run-ins with the police have also been violent on both sides from both him and the police, according to the mom. But a lot of times, more violence is coming from the side of the police, which unfortunately does not surprise me. All of this points to an overall lack of empathy on the side of neurotypical individuals and the systems they work in, not the autistic people. I think if those of us who work in these systems really truly took the time to learn and understand autism and not just stick to this blanket surface level definition of it. The systems that are built to help autistic people may actually start to, I don't know, help the people that they claim to help instead of kicking it down the road or brushing the concerns aside or, you know, just pumping them up full of medication to sedate them and things like that. You have to actually address the autism itself. Again, if there's a mental health condition also running, coinciding with it, yes, that's, that's important to treat. But you also have to address the autism because a lot of times the mental health condition may, not always, but it may have developed because they have been having to hide themselves as an autistic person. The anxiety may have came from having to be in a world that wasn't meant for them. The anger may be from bottling up all of this, uh, all of this fear and pain from the way that they've been treated. But if you don't even look or acknowledge the autism side, you're not going to come to that conclusion. You're not going to, you're not even going to think about that. So I think that's a biggie that in our field, we really have to keep in mind. Autism and mental health conditions are not exclusive from each other. A lot of times they run together and both have to be looked at. So yeah, that's my uh, first mini spark of season two. I'm going to try to keep an eye on both of these situations and kind of, uh, if there's any updates, I'll give updates. Sometimes, a lot of times, like the newspaper will cover like the initial event and then you never hear about it again. So if there's any updates on either one of these situations, I will definitely um, let you know. I don't know if the mom is up for coming onto the podcast or not. I. I'd actually much rather kind of just uh, she focus on doing what's best for her son for right now. But her situation is not unique. There are thousands of parents, I think, across our country who are probably dealing with the same situation where the system is essentially failing their their kids and failing the family because there are people in positions to make these determinations that do not fully understand autism. And that's kind of one of the things that with uh, my business, Spark, I hope to change. Uh, there's others like me across the country who also want to do similar or are doing similar work. And yeah, I'm hoping to kind of little by little change that and make it better and, and educate more people on autism 
so that we don't have stories like this popping up over and over again. So that'll wrap up my uh, mini spark for today. Thank you for listening. I appreciate each and every one of my listeners. And if you would like to be on the podcast, if you have an idea for a possible podcast episode, hit me up and let me know. Uh, my email address is angelw, A-N-G-E-L-W, at sparkguidance.com, spelled S-P-A-R-C-G-U-I-D-A-N-C-E.com. You can hit up my website if you want to know a little bit more about uh, me, about the my business, what I do, and what services I offer. That is www.sparkguidance.com, spelled the same way, S P A R C. G-U-I-D-A-N-C-E.com. If you want to go back and check out more episodes of the podcast, we have a website for that as well. That is www.sparkupautism.com. So S-P-A-R-C-U-P-A-U-T-I-S-M.com. So three ways to kind of get in touch with me, like through there or listen to the podcast. You can also listen to the podcast on the website as well. So I look forward from, to hearing from you. The next uh, episode is more than likely going to be an interview. We're getting, we're now into, at the time of this recording, we're now into Black History Month. So that's going to be a thread through most of the main episodes for the next couple of episodes, basically. We're going to be coming back and talking more about uh, the Black community and autism. And those of you who caught the first episode of this season, you know that that is uh, kind of the main focus for the remainder of this season. It's going to be really focusing on the Black community and autism and how we can um, improve the the knowledge, awareness, and acceptance of autism within our community and how we can advocate more for our kids in the system when it comes to autism. So I will talk to you guys next time. And remember, be blessed. Don't be stressed. Bye!